rethinking this potential future in respect to how we uh, govern ourselves more effectively, which would mean having a more frequent dialogue and reducing the gap between government and, and citizen. I don't think it's realistic to expect that voting will always be compulsory. Um, decisions sort of overload, I suppose, you know, when you have to be making decisions frequently on everything, especially on things that maybe you have no interest in or, or no knowledge about. A wise man once said... A wise man once said... The best way to predict the future... Is to create it. You are about to experience a next level show. Scientists. Entrepreneurs. Thought leaders. You're listening to the Future of Humanity podcast. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to the show. I am your host, Carl Taylor. And if you're joining me for the very first time, welcome. Uh, I'm so glad that you are here. This is the show where we explore through discussions with incredible people from around the world just what the future of humanity potentially holds. Now, if you're an old friend and you've been listening for a while, welcome back. I am so thrilled that you've joined us again. In this episode, we are joined by technologist and entrepreneur Jamie Skeller, who is the co-founder of a company called Horizon State. Now, Horizon State is redesigning how societies collaboratively make decisions using distributed ledger technology. Now, this is often referred to as blockchain. Uh, This is not our first episode where we've spoken to a blockchain company. So, if blockchain in particular quite interests you, then definitely, if you haven't already, go back and have a listen to episode one, where we spoke to Dave Martin from PowerLedger, another great blockchain company. Uh, But before you do that, listen to this episode, you can always go back and listen to episode one later. Because today we are joined, as I mentioned, by Jamie. And Jamie has a diverse background. He's spent 20 years in the designing, building and advising of businesses across blockchain, esports, machine learning, and even future foods. He was the former executive director at MyVote, which is an information platform that allows Australians to have their say on issues that are being debated in the Australian Parliament. And what he and his team at Horizon State are doing, not just in Australia, but around the world, is potentially game-changing to how our current democratic systems operate. In this episode, we talk about the future of voting. We discuss what blockchain is and how it's enabled electronic voting to become unhackable, which previously that's been one of the major issues with electronic voting. We also talk about the future of an informed public. I mean, you know, the voters need to be informed before they can make a decision. And we discuss what that might mean for us and how we might need to change our definition of humanity decades into the future to ensure we stay informed. It's a fantastic episode. I, you know, I'm really loving what Jamie and the team at Horizon State are doing. I cannot wait to share this with you. Unfortunately, I do need to give you this heads up. The morning of this interview, my office internet went down and I was connected to the internet via my smartphone, tethered. That's unfortunately meant there are roughly three or four times that Jamie's audio gets a little bit scrambled for a few seconds due to signal fluctuations. So apologies for that. It definitely doesn't take away from the episode and its content, but I wanted to give you that heads up so you don't look at your phone or wherever you're listening from and think you're having connection issues. It's not on your end. So with that said, let's start the interview. 
So we are joined by Jamie Skeller. And Jamie, you have very diverse background, machine learning, esports, future of foods, and of course, blockchain. What I'm interested about is that esports, you opened, as I understand it, the very first esports bar in Australia. Yeah, uh, a lot of people find it relatively surprising given that my day job is uh, in emerging technology and uh, in blockchain. But I, I do consider esports as uh, something that's certainly emerging, not necessarily technology, but, but culturally, um, which technology tends to, to drive. The advent of, of Twitch and the popularity of watching others play games has really brought esports to, to a whole new level over the past few years. But I think more broadly speaking, esports uh, is sort of, in part at least, in large part, responsible for a lot of my success. I started playing Counter-Strike and Quake World TF competitively back when I was a young teen, 13, 14. Sort of, it really opened my eyes on how to build a team, how to lead a team, how to inspire people. Um, I learned how to write code and, and design websites. I learned about Blaria and Wide Area networking to, to improve and optimize my latency. I, uh, I learned how to build computers and, and how computers work. And so it was sort of my, my entry into everything. And I, I guess I've uh, got a lot of thanks for that. Yeah, well, we have, we have similar backgrounds there. I built my own computers and I learned all about networks and stuff because it made better LAN parties, right? You wanted to have your friends over. So anyone's listening and you're like, what exactly is esports? Esports is essentially people playing computer games. That's in a nutshell what it is. And it has become huge you know there are esports players as i believe it who are earning you know multi million dollars a year playing video games if i had known as a teenager that playing video games could have been a viable career path i may not be doing what i'm doing today the first time that i told my parents that i was getting flown across uh to to the east coast which was my my first travel really ever first time on a plane and that um i was getting paid to play this game called counter strike and they were going to put me up at a at a hotel um, they literally thought it was nonsense. Uh, so it was, a, it was a pretty funny uh, sort of exploratory period. But obviously, it's matured a lot since then as well. And, and yes, quite literally, players are earning big bucks. Uh, stadiums are being filled. The League of Legends sort of world championship uh, a couple of years ago had a, um, a higher viewership than the entire NBA final series. So it's big business and it's a lot of fun. Wow. Amazing. Well, I didn't invite you on here to, to talk about esports though. So that's just, you know, that's an amazing fact and, and really fascinating. Uh, maybe we'll do a future episode about uh, esports if you like. The reason I wanted you to come on is you have a, an amazing technology company that you co-founded called Horizon State. Well, I mean, what's the story behind it? How did Horizon State come about? In a nutshell, if I was to give you the elevator pitch, this, this really revolves around... Um, secure elections um, and tamper-proof records of results and sort of, I guess, unhackable democratic processes, both within institutions and governmental applications, uh, which is a, a big deal and it's a big statement, but I'll explain a little bit on sort of how that's possible shortly. But um, so far as backstory is concerned, you know, timing, as they say, is everything in technology. Um, and uh, about two and a half years ago, three years ago, I was not only working with a, a democratic movement here in Melbourne called MyVote, M-I-V-O-T-E, but I was also dabbling in, in crypto and, and doing some research in distributed ledger technology and, and blockchain. And through working towards some of the uh, the objectives uh, that we were striving for at MyVote, it became uh, apparent that the idea that we would be trying to create um, a more frequent dialogue with individuals about the issues that affect them couldn't really be done through postal votes and, and polling stations. These are centralized physically. They are expensive to set up or send out. They're inefficient. They take a long time. They, they cost a lot of money. So I really was thinking about this internet voting thing all over again, uh, despite the fact that it's usually dismissed just because of inherent centralization and the, uh, the security risks that come along with that. Uh, but what blockchain really gives us the opportunity to do is to decentralize the ballot box. Uh, and so if you think about a Bitcoin transaction being 
um, immutable and irreversible, perfectly accountable and transparent. Well, those those sorts of properties make for a really good sort of voting system or opinion solicitation system or voting uh, and uh, polling system. That's sort of where the dots began to uh, be connected. And over the course of a few months, we built out an MVP, which more or less retrofitted a blockchain transaction to represent a vote. Um, and that's sort of where everything took off. So not only interest from government at various levels, from domestic councils through to international uh, national governments abroad, but also um, NGOs and, and other institutions, other enterprise, things such as shareholder voting and community engagement more broadly. So it's really blown up into this big beast that's sort of all underpinned by that initial idea that, hey, we might be able to work towards uh, the eradication of corruption by leveraging this kind of technology. It's a huge idea. Some people, you know, those in Australia, the US, they might not feel it's as big a deal. But if you're in a developing country like the Philippines, uh, Indonesia, Malaysia, like there is huge corruption at all sorts of levels happening. The idea of being to er eradicate corruption is 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 a huge concept for them. There's multiple sort of problems that get solved by the introduction of this kind of technology. So sure, there's there's the blockchain piece which secures the vote in unprecedented ways, but there's also the knock-on effects, uh, social, cultural, and behavioural. So if we can decentralise participation, not only decentralise the ballot box so that no institution, government, organisation, or individual actually controls the result uh, or can change it, but when you start to think about decentralising participation, uh, enabling people to um, basically vote from their pocket, then you increase participation and maybe we'll see the numbers in the US rise if this kind of tech was adopted. And in developing nations where sometimes um, it's sometimes not a good idea at all to even attend based on your political position, uh, sometimes it's unsafe. People, uh, unfortunately, are, are maimed and in the worst case scenario are killed. Um, there's a lot of opportunity for a lot of, a lot of positive change through, through, through the implementation of this kind of tech. And bringing it back more to Australia, I mean, does that, that now tells people that they can no longer say that they're going to go vote as an excuse of why they can't go to work, right? If all of a sudden the vote was as simple as pull out their smartphone and uh, cast their vote and then get back to work. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So this is interesting. I mean, one thing I think we need to go back on, you're not the first blockchain company we've had on the podcast. We had for episode one, actually, of season one, we had Power Ledger, which I know that you're familiar with, another fellow Aussie homegrown blockchain company doing amazing things. But for someone who's listening, you, you mentioned Bitcoin and you were like, yeah, we all know it's an immutable transaction. But do we all know that, right? How many people are listening going, what is he talking about? Cryptocurrency, I've heard this Bitcoin thing. Can you break down for those listening who maybe have heard the term Bitcoin, but that's as far as really it's gone? When we're talking blockchain, what's the difference between blockchain and cryptocurrency? I mean, I think that's an important distinction. How, when you say, oh, this is how it works, explaining how your platform works, maybe giving us that background. Let's start with, I guess, the distinction that blockchain is not Bitcoin, um, is effectively with a, with a lowercase b is, is a native asset class atop of a blockchain, which happens to be the Bitcoin blockchain with a capital B. So you've got Bitcoin, the network, the technology, and you've got Bitcoin, the, the asset, the currency, which is very, very specifically designed to do things such as be a medium of exchange or a store of value or, or a unit of account. But it's really, for me, the, the most fascinating uh, part of the equation is indeed the blockchain itself. <clears throat> and of course, now there are many others. Um, Ethereum is another big popular one, uh, which is sort of making headlines. And you might have heard of Ripple or Litecoin or Dash or Zcash and a, and a whole bunch of these other ones. The easiest way to explain why they're important, why it's a big deal and how they work is, is to first talk about the matter of currency and digital assets and ownership. And so it's relatively profound when you when you start to think about other kinds of digital 
things. Uh, let's let's use an MP3 as an example and pretend for a moment that the Australian federal government has declared MP3s legal tender. Well, I can copy an MP3 a million times and then sort of have a million bucks, so to speak. Likewise, if you had a copy of that, um, a merchant wouldn't really be able to understand whose was legitimate and, and whose wasn't. And so through this technology, when I have a Bitcoin, I quite literally have that Bitcoin. Um, there is ownership assigned and, and I control it. Um, it can't be forged. Um, it can't be copied. And so this is, this is a big deal conceptually. I guess the other reason it's, it's important from a financial perspective is a bit more philosophical, but uh, it's really about considering the future that we're um, walking into, especially within developed nations such as Australia, where cash is becoming um, less and less common. Uh, and eventually, it probably really won't exist at all for as a medium of exchange. And what this means is that all of our money is with banks effectively digitally. Uh, who control the flow of that money uh, and ultimately surveil that money. Um, we could potentially be wandering into a bit of an Orwellian future, which would be unfortunate. And so cryptocurrency sort of restore, restores self-sovereign financial management as an option if you want to do it. Uh, obviously, there's risk because if you lose your private key, you sort of lose everything. But I think just like we have the option to use cash, having the option to, to use something comparable is also very important. But it comes with um, the luxury of being digital and borderless and, and all of these things, which which cash isn't. So I hope that sort of explains the, the cryptocurrency stuff uh, with, with enough specificity. In respect to blockchain, it's a much bigger idea that has implications that extend far beyond currency because ultimately what uh, the blockchain is is, uh, is a distributed and synchronized ledger or to put it another way, a synchronized record book. And you can make these line items represent more or less whatever you want. It can be uh, relational to, to physical. Um, and we're seeing some fantastic um, ideas and implementations in respect to supply chain and some really, really powerful social good ones as well, such as the profiling of about 40 or 50 characteristics of a diamond at the side of mine, uh, and then tracking that through the supply chain in an immutable, irreversible, tamper-proof way so that consumers, um, they can rest assured that um, there is a clear paper trail and they can understand that the practices and procedures involved across that supply chain to reduce harm, basically, and curb the, the flow of conflict and, and blood diamonds, which is, you know, a really great example. For us, you know, it's about repurposing transactions for votes. And then you've got companies like Powerledger who are enabling peer-to-peer -peer energy trade using this kind of technology. So, uh, you know, thinking about Joe and Sue having solar panels on their roof and Tesla power walls uh, on the outside of their home and being able to, to trade sort of excess or surplus energy uh, as neighbors need it. So lots of really, really profound examples um, worth exploring. And, and do you believe, I mean, there are many people who talk about blockchain being the as important, if not more important than the invention of the internet. Are, are you a believer in this? I mean, you obviously, you are biased possibly with a blockchain company, but do you feel it's that significance of importance to society? I put it into the same kind of category, which we would put the internet and we would put things like the steam engine. This kind of technology, these kinds of technologies are quite literally ones that change how society organizes itself. It changes culture, it drives culture, it changes behavior. Uh, you think about the changes we've seen over the past 50 and 100 years because of some of these inventions um, paired with globalization and, and the ability for them to encourage communication or trade, commerce. It's, it's, it's really, really shifted what the world is and how people interact with each other. Uh, and the blockchain and some of its applications are going to do all these sorts of things all over again. I agree with you. I think, I think blockchain is a very fascinating. I mean, I dabble personally in some cryptocurrencies, but uh, I'm far more interested in blockchain itself. One of the reasons that I really wanted to have you on, same with the guys from Power Ledger, is there's so much 
junk out there. I mean, you just listed a bunch that are doing really practical things, but there's so much junk out in the, the blockchain and crypto space. I mean, some companies just adding blockchain to the, their name so that their share price can go up. But you guys are actually doing something transformative and practical. What's really interesting to me is the, where, the space that you're in with kind of digitizing votes, which I think at least most people I've spoken to in Australia has been saying, why can't we vote online for years? I've had new, every time an election comes up, it always seems to be a bunch of us going, this is stupid. Why can't we vote online? And obviously there are many security issues and problems of why we haven't been able to vote online to date, uh, not properly and at scale. How does your platform from a security standpoint? I mean, you've mentioned the blockchain side of things, but why is it that using Horizon State would make it a more secure uh, voting platform. Throwing back to the cryptocurrency conversation, I think uh, the easiest way to start explaining why it's secure is to explain kind of how cryptocurrency works, at least at a very high conceptual level, which is that, for example, you've got uh, Joe and Sue and they want to exchange $5 worth of value, but they don't want to necessarily use an intermediary. They don't want to use a bank. Um, but they'd still like um, a good record to be kept of this just to make sure that none of them plays funny buggers later because they know each other, but they don't know each other that well. Um, and so what they do is, they get 200 of their closest friends and associates and colleagues um, to, to come to their, the place of this transaction. Um, and they tell them all to bring record books uh, and pens or pencils. And collectively, they witness this exchange of value, this $5 worth of value being exchanged uh, between Joe and Sue. And everybody writes it uh, into a, a line item in their, in their respective record books. Um, it documents the time, it documents the place, it documents the sender and the receiver, it uh, verifies their signatures. And there is a, a shared reality here amongst all of those people who witnessed this transaction. They all take their shared record books and, and they go back home. Uh, some of them live across the street. Some of them are a suburb away. Some live on the opposite side of the well. Uh, and there are lots of them. Uh, in fact, uh, you know, in respect to, to blockchain, technically speaking, there are thousands and tens of thousands and will soon be hundreds of thousands of what we call nodes. These people uh, effectively in verifying transactions, right? Now, if conceptually, if you were to if you were trying to maliciously change the record of that transaction, you wanted it to say $50 of value instead of $5 of value, um, you'd kind of have to break into every single home simultaneously and, and change the, uh, the the record of um, that transaction in every single record book, uh, hopefully without waking any of them up, um, and, and do so in a way that effectively creates a new shared uh, reality. And so speaking in layman's terms, right now based on current compute, um, this is more or less impossible. Uh, if you want to put a computer science uh, computer scientist hat on, you would you would call it uh, extremely improbable. But but either way, that is kind of how the security of, of um, a blockchain works. Again, very high level. It's it's not perfectly technically accurate. It goes a lot deeper than that. But it gives people a good entry point to start thinking about the mechanics. And now, if you if you think about potentially swapping out a, a transaction that relates to five dollars of value and instead representing a vote, then all automatic, automatically you can start to appreciate how that vote would be uh, unchangeable and tamper-proof and uh, accountable uh, in all, for all perpetuity. I mean, obviously, the thing that comes to my mind is, you know, the vote would be accurate. The record of the vote would be accurate, but it would still obviously be people would still be the, the fallible part or the, the, the logging of that vote. I mean, if someone was to get a bot, for example, is it possible that a bot could make a whole bunch of fake votes? Or is this where the voting platform has to tie to someone's identity in some way to track back. That's right. And so, so this is a big part of the solution uh, is still very much identity. But what that identity and authorization and, and eligibility piece of the puzzle looks like varies from place to place. We have some corporate and enterprise customers who have 
relatively simple processes and procedures and policies which we adhere to in, res- in regard to establishing identity and making sure people only have one vote while protecting that identity. The way that looks for, for example, um, a, a state government or a national government can be very, very different and, and different based on jurisdiction as well. So we are flexible in that regard and we make sure that um, these processes and policies are appropriately uh, you know, accommodated for. Uh, wherever we att- attempt to do business or, or find some penetration. Uh, and this is really important as well in terms of speed to market and, and working towards mass adoption of this kind of technology because it's one thing to go in there and talk about this unhackable record of, of, a, of a result um, and then to also say, uh, oh, by the way, we, we also need to change how your entire entire citizenship is ID'd. It's, it's usually a step too far. Yeah, well, exactly. I mean, it, people might say they like change. Even even techies like you and I probably go, yeah, we love change. But there's a certain reality of how much change we'll accept at one time, right? I want to touch on something that I've heard you say that driverless cars now exist, yet our democratic process and tools are comparable to horse and cart. Can you explain what you meant when you said that? If you look at most of what's going on in our world technologically, uh, which again, to reiterate, is, is really what drives culture and behavior. We, I think we like to believe that we create technology with a specific intention in mind. More or less, we are, we are driving um, what humanity is to become, but it's, it's actually flipped. If you think about um, the advent of the internet and the technology which existed uh, to access it then, uh, we really were only starting to modernize prior processes for, for work and play because we hadn't imagined things which, would had, which hadn't been imagined yet, which other technology hadn't enabled. The improvement of microelectronics, um, smartphones, data connectivity, we start, started to see technologies such as Uber and Airbnb arrive, which uh, you know 15 years ago would have been pretty much unimaginable. And on top of that, uh, part of the reason they were unimaginable is because they uh, required you to think about how you would interact with people in very different ways. The idea that you would step into a stranger's car or invite a stranger into your house was quite literally a changed culture uh, and changed behavior. And if we look at our world, broadly speaking, everything is moving at that kind of pace. Stuff 15 years away is unpredictable, uh, but generally speaking, we've, we've kept things pointed in a, in a generally positive direction. The two things that uh, lag behind have really been how we govern ourselves, democracies uh, and other forms of government and uh, education, unfortunately. These are the two things that really haven't changed all that much uh, in my lifetime. And so when we were thinking about the problem at hand uh, and the opportunity that this technology now enables, it was really about, wow, maybe we can finally have democracy and politics and the way we govern ourselves catch up to the rest of uh, society. So, uh, you know, it's, it's exciting to finally be at a, at a potential inflection point and, uh, you know, really proud to, to be a part of it. Really interesting inflection point of humanity in general uh, with so many different technologies that are all kind of converging. And, and so that's something I'm, I'm curious about of how do you see the technology that you're working on combining with some of the other trends like AI, voice, machine learning, all of that, like AR, VR. How do you see your technology potentially interacting with those into the future? Oh, look, I'll give you one little example now of, of two sort of cutting-edge technologies which are actually being combined right now, which is which is blockchain uh, for the purposes of a, of a of a transaction or a currency, and also the latest in biometrics. And so, there was um, a United Nations initiative towards the end of last year, which uh, basically began to ID Syrian refugees coming through Jordanian camps using retina scanners, biometric scanning, and by establishing this this perfect uh, biometric identity of each individual, 
they would then apply food stamps, food vouchers through the blockchain. Uh, so more or less issuing them currency for specific kinds of redemption. Uh, and this means that they could leverage the borderless and immutable qualities of the blockchain in, in brand new ways without even needing a mobile phone or a computer. Uh, this is important for a few reasons in the context of, of these camps. It prevents things like double, double spending, people trying to, to forge, for example, some kind of uh, intra-camp currency to, uh, to, to claim more than they're entitled to. Also stops uh, robbery and theft and mugging uh, of those uh, what are highly valuable, I guess, vouchers. And so they would wander into these stalls within um, the camp and they would have their retina scanned again and more or less uh, debited or deducted from their balance when they walked out uh, with their food. And so really, really cool stuff, high impact social good stuff, which is, which is fantastic. In relation to uh, our technology specifically, voting and, and what that could look like in regards to combinations of technologies into the future, we're already looking very, very closely at uh, things like machine learning and, and narrow artificial intelligences to be able to, I guess, discover, analyze and disseminate information in brand new ways, far more objective ways than what a human might interpret it, and do it far more efficiently as well. You know, it's, it's one thing to secure the vote in a perfect way, big enough unto itself. It's another to reduce the cost of doing that for the organizing body, which in Australia, as an example, could mean the taxpayer, for example, $120 million on a same-sex marriage plan the site, which took three months to run, uh, and of course, reduce the times. It's, it's fantastic to do all those things, but by doing those things specifically, you're not really improving the quality of outcome, right? You're, you're making a democracy more accessible. Uh, you're encouraging participation and, and soliciting opinion potentially far more frequently, but it's not improving necessarily the quality of those democratic outcomes. Mm. And so by, by being able to better inform people, hopefully, you know, as the saying goes, shit in, shit out. But in, in this case, if we can improve the quality of inputs, then we can improve the quality of outputs. And so that's that, just one way that we're thinking about uh, improving that using a combination of emerging technologies. And that's really interesting to me because... I was in the Sydney Morning Herald uh, last year, I think, because there was this big, I can't remember what it's called, it's like the big idea and people could submit ideas. And I submitted an idea that I, I thought that there should be an app that every, that was like the Australian government, we should all have an app on our phones so that we can vote on different policies. Very similar to the, to the whole my vote concept that you were, were working with before. I ended up getting in the Sydney Morning Herald about this app idea. I think they thought I'd actually created the app. It was just an idea of what I thought should happen. Um, but the media being media, they drum it up. The thing is, though, that I had a number of people come to me with a valid point. I hadn't thought about it. They said, well, you know, that's all well and good, but there are plenty of people who would be voting on something that they have no idea. They're not educated in the issue or the policy that's being voted on. Plus, you know, the government, uh, yes, we hear all the debates, but the government pass all sorts of different policies and legislation every day. To vote on every single one would be ridiculous. We wouldn't get any work done. The point that was most concerning, because, you know, I've heard it said, it's like the best thing about democracy is everyone has a say. The worst thing about democracy is everyone has a say, right? <laughs> yeah. Because yeah. it really does depend on different education levels, uh, people's what's driving them and, and why, why they vote for something. So to mention that you could better inform people so we end up getting a better decision. So how exactly can you go about that? Or is that still kind of unfolding? AI is going to help automate part of that process, but as it, as it can be achieved right now, one example is indeed my vote, where they solicit the support and uh, help of uh, PhDs and analysts and researchers from all around the world, people from the left of politics and the right, uh, different worldviews, uh, different, different geographical locations and citizenships. And, and through their collaboration, they're able to arrive at information packs which are required to be digested for having your say, which are far more objective and less biased than what you might see on Today Tonight or, or read on the Daily Mail. And, you know, this isn't perfect. Um, none of this in, is perfect, in, in fact, but, um, you know, perfectionism 
isn't real. And this is all about really taking proactive, positive steps towards improving the status quo. There is no silver bullet here. It's just about taking uh, you know steps uh, in the, the best, uh, most positive light that we can. Yeah, definitely. Love that. That idea of getting, I mean, you know, it's easy to say it's unbiased, but to get a huge group of different people from different uh, leanings, different backgrounds to then come together and put together an info pack. That's, um, that sounds like a lot of hard work, but probably also worth mentioning um, that I, I think in this potential future uh, in respect to how we uh, govern ourselves more effectively, which would mean having a more frequent dialogue and reducing the gap between government and, and citizen, I don't think it's realistic to expect that voting will always be compulsory. Uh, decisions sort of overload, I suppose, you know, when you have to be making decisions frequently on everything, especially on things that maybe you have no interest in or, or no knowledge about. Again, you're, you're probably going to erode the quality of outcomes rather than improve it. So I, I'd like to think that sometime into the future, um, we'll start to uh, think about ways that, that we can solicit opinion um, and uh, arrive at decisions uh, that have more, I guess, um, uh, more specificity for the people in question. Interesting concept of, yeah, I mean, when you make it optional, then the people who know nothing about it can opt to go, you know what, I know nothing about this. I'm not going to dilute the decision-making by me just randomly picking a decision. I'm sure there'd be some, you know, very true to the democratic process that would be outraged by that idea, though, and think that everyone should have their say. That's really interesting. I grew up in a pretty poor neighbourhood in South Australia, a place called Salisbury. Um, uh, getting better, but it was certainly a lot worse um, back in the 80s. And uh, I, c I can tell you firsthand that when a community is politically disengaged, um, the idea that they will get fined um, $70 or whatever it might be for, for not voting is more or less the only motivation to vote. It, it doesn't mean that they go and learn about the policies. It doesn't mean they go and understand who they're voting for or the history. A lot of the time, um, they didn't even necessarily know who the politicians were in question, sometimes not even who the prime minister was or who the, who the future prime minister could be. And uh, a lot of a lot of friends and family members um, would more or less donkey vote or uh, um, you know, vote randomly, which I think is um, obviously not a good outcome. It dilutes the quality of outcome anyway. And, and unfortunately, this is not an uncommon reality. Uh, you know, those of us living in Brunswick and in Fitzroy and Melbourne like to think that everybody cares and everybody understands. It's just not the case. Mm. And if you're joining us from a non-Australian country or in a country that it isn't compulsory to vote, just so you know, in Australia, it is compulsory to vote, which is what we are talking about. And if you don't vote, you get a fine. You can even be taken to court. I was actually talking to a, a friend of mine recently who was explaining that he had to go to court because he opted not to vote. And um, yeah, very interesting. So I mean, let's talk a little bit more about the future. Okay. So, so your technology and other blockchain technologies are out there. Like what you're doing now with the ability to vote, assuming that your technology, you know, Horizon State becomes the, the go-to voting platform globally or even just in certain countries around the world. And I know you do have some deals uh, that are in the works or even have happened. We'll talk about them shortly. Let's say 10 years from now, 20 years future, like what are we looking at? What, what needs to happen? Actually, a better question is what needs to happen between now and a future where it is a digital voting platform? What are we looking at here? It's going to be a slow process overall. We're under no illusions that we can sort of change the world overnight or that this is going to be a flip of the switch. Um, in Australia, we have relatively um, you know, high levels of penetration for, for mobile devices uh, and smartphones. We're, we're talking in the vicinity of sort of 80, 85% mobile 
uh, sorry, 80-85% smartphone and, and about 95% uh, mobile. So there is the opportunity to put this technology into many people's hands, but it's also important to recognize that it doesn't need to be all or nothing. You know, For every postal vote, we don't need to send. For every ballot box, we don't need to stand up. We're saving time, we're saving money, and we're improving the, legitim- the, the legitimacy of, of that result uh, with particular focus on the security of that result. Um, so it's, it's going to be something that indeed will take five and 10 and maybe even more time than that uh, to actually fully realize. Uh, but I do think that within that sort of time frame, the reality is going to be that any um, politician, any party, any government that is rejecting uh, the consideration of the use of this technology will effectively be waving a flag signaling um, their own corruption because there is no reason, just simply no reason that you wouldn't want to uh, improve the security of the result and improve the quality of your democratic process. Um, look, we're in late stage talks with a, a national government over in the European region right now. And in fact, the first um, election that they will likely run using our technology won't be as cool as having people vote from the mobile phone in their pocket, but it will still be about capturing the vote using digital technology uh, onto a blockchain through uh, centralized sort of polling stations. So in many ways, it's going to be baby steps, but they're all, again, they're all steps um, in, a, in a positive direction. I think that that makes sense, though. I mean, we don't need to, as you said, we don't need to jump all the way to voting from our phones, even just the current paper-based approach of going in. I actually volunteered at one point and I, I worked at a polling, I think it was a state election, I worked at a polling station and had to kind of take all these big pieces of paper and put them into different orders. And it was a lot of work and it was late nights to think that we could just eliminate all of that. I remember thinking that going, this is ridiculous how much paper is involved here when we have computer systems. So I agree, like we could just start with taking the current process and just digitize that. You know, let's take that step. Thinking even bigger and bolder, obviously, the work that I'm doing with Horizon State and my vote is really about improving the quality of our collaborative decision-making processes and installing brand new levels of trust um, in governments and in the decision-making process through this technology. But it's actually ultimately still not enough. I think um, uh, with a little bit of existential dread that right now, you know, one individual can uh, print a firearm and do some damage or one small group of individuals um, can propagate uh, what we're calling fake news and, and quite literally change significant outcomes and polarize communities and create conflicts uh, through this this kind of power, which is all enabled by technology. And as technology continues on its exponential curve, the kinds of power it grants individuals and small groups of people is exponentially what more powerful, right? And, and so I've been really thinking deeply about how do we put the quality of our decision making, not only collectively and collaboratively, but individually on a similar exponential curve, because unless the, the quality of our individual outcomes continues to improve, well, one day somebody's going to be able to 3D print a nuclear weapon and, and do some real damage. Now, that's obviously a very crude example, but the, the point I'm trying to illustrate here is that technology continues to grant individuals more and more power. Uh, and so we need to think about not necessarily about how to restrict technological advance, that would be entirely futile, but how to improve we as humans and our condition, how we behave and how we think. And uh, a lot of this will have to do with things like intelligence augmentation and uh, the role of artificial intelligence in the future. Um, but certainly, it's um, it, it sort of worries me and I'm, I'm starting to direct a large amount of energy into thinking about what kinds of solutions might be possible in the near future based on emerging technology that can help, I guess, mitigate uh, mitigate against that kind of future uh, doom. I mean, and that's a that's something that obviously philosophers and uh, you know people worrying about ethics and morals have struggled with for years as every technology has come about. And I think that governments have always struggled to then legislate because you know the the laws don't the technology outstrips 
the speed at which the the people in power often understand the technology to then even know where to start when it comes to regulating it. And then there are obviously those who are, are you know, in the purely capitalist mindset that believe regulation is wrong and, and shouldn't be used. So, you know, there's there's conflicting views there. You mentioned the idea of 3D printing, people can 3D print a gun, which is absolutely true. And then the idea of one day in the future, it's being able to 3D print something like a nuclear weapon is, yeah, absolutely. Uh, technologically, I'm sure we'll get there. Mass destruction or weapons of mass destruction, they actually come in many ways, shapes and forms. It is a very crude example, but I would actually consider um, audio, video synthesis, the kinds of stuff that's arriving, which enables someone to post a, a, a video, a motion video of President Trump or former President Obama um, saying things that they never said, sounding just like them, looking just like them. This unto itself is potentially a weapon of mass destruction. And I think that has the, the ability to erode trust and uh, societal cohesion in, in really, really profound, uh, unfortunately profound ways. And, and so this is, again, an example of the kind of technology which is pretty much already here uh, and enables individuals to, to inflict uh, mass confusion, mass harm. Um, the idea you say of it, it is already here, and I know that because I myself, there was a, a recording I did for one of our future episodes, previous episodes. There was one word I wanted to edit and change in the thing, I was like, oh, surely there's going to be a way to just edit that one word and not have to record the whole thing again. I don't know if you've seen the video of Adobe Voco, which I think that project has been killed, but basically it is audio editing with 20 minutes of audio of someone's voice. You can then just type out anything you want and it will speak it as that person. But I think Adobe Voco, at least for now, has been killed possibly by their legal team. Uh, there is another company called Liarbird, which is online, free, available. Then there's also the, the video work that can be done where you can you know, they have done Obama videos of where that's just completely 3D generated and make him say whatever you want. Like fake news, I think is a big thing. And it was something I was touching on earlier is that as much as we can digitize and build trust in the voting blockchain, the voting ledger, the weak link here still is the human being who votes. They can still be manipulated through fake news, through like what uh, they, they say happened through Facebook with Cambridge Analytica. Do you think the only solution there is kind of Elon Musk's idea of melding our minds with artificial intelligence? Uh, I do actually. It's 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 a, it's a, it's inevitable. Um, and you know when we when we're talking about the uh, the opportunity for individuals to affect um, large groups of people, then obviously we want them to be uh, doing so with um, the, the the best possible intelligence and the best possible information. Um, and right now, uh, both are unfortunately unfortunately lacking as as technology continues on that exponential curve. And so unless we can find a way to to basically keep up uh, with technology. Uh, leverage it for good and make better decisions with it along the way, then uh, we're going to run into some hurdles. I think when you think about this deeply enough and, and for long enough, that is uh, the ultimate eventuation and, and maybe somebody else will have some other ideas. But um, I, I, I don't doubt that within two generations uh, from now, um, not only biological, physical augmentation will be relatively commonplace, even if only minor, um, but we'll have started to explore uh, in meaningful ways what intelligence augmentation looks like as well. Uh, and look, uh, people freak out with this concept, but we've kind of already augmented ourselves um, in many ways. You know, there's the smartphone in our pocket is effectively infinite memory and perfect recall. We have uh, cars which we drive around, which we just think, of, think about as a mode of transportation. But really what you've just done is, is given you the superpower of speed and, and an armored sort of shell. Uh, these are all augmentations um, of, of uh, the human condition and, and how we conduct ourselves and, and how we behave and interact and uh, more broadly how society works. Um, and so these are really, these concepts are really just extensions of the kind of augmentation that already exists. 
I, I don't disagree. It's just I also struggle to comprehend of I think this comes down to the existential idea of what is it to make us human. And if at that point when we've melded more with machines in our mind, is are we still human or are we something else at that point? Every, everybody, I think, gets kind of caught up on, on what it means to be human. But the bottom line is that people generally, as humans, think very uh, linearly and, and uh, can't uh, necessarily grasp easily uh, the concept of at least trying to think exponentially. But we get hung up um, on current condition and current state because that's all we know. That's how we exist. And we read about the history books and it doesn't necessarily seem like there's been a lot of evolution. Uh, but in fact, there has. I mean, the, each generation grows taller. Small things like this and over thousands or millions of years, the changes are quite profound. Uh, and through technology, we now accelerate it um, just in time. Ultimately, if we don't do these things, if we don't find a way to modify um, the human uh, existence in a way that will let us travel through space, then we all die on this rock eventually. You know, Give it a few billion years and, and however it ends, whether it's an asteroid or, or the sun dying or whatever the case is, maybe we'll kill it ourselves with, with global warming. Um, but the bottom line is if, if we don't forcefully evolve, then we all die on this rock. And so if anybody's interested truly uh, in the propagation of, of whatever um, you define humanity as, then, then we need to, uh, to to evolve. Look, absolutely, and and I think evolution happens physically, and also I think there's a there's an element of consciousness and and the way we think, which you know, uh, some believe spirituality and the path of enlightenment is the way to get it, and maybe maybe the way we'll get there is through the use of technology. Who knows? I want to come back to your technology, though. I mean, this is great conversation, but I want to come back to Horizon State and go. We've talked a lot about elections. That's an obvious use case for your technology. What else? What other platforms? You mentioned NGOs, you've mentioned companies. Like, What are the other use cases that people are looking to or actually are already using your technology for? I'll give you a few examples. One is um, local government. So we're currently in talks with the Victorian Council um, in respect to the utilization of this sort of uh, blockchain technology to improve the dialogue with them and their residents uh, for that council. And so a, a typical way that this works currently is that they'll spend tens of thousands of dollars on a letterbox drop inviting people to come to town hall. And sometimes instead of tens of thousands of people, in fact, that never happens. Um, it's more like tens of people. And sometimes it's just a few, quite literally, sometimes just a few people. So terrible ROI, obviously a terrible way to, uh, to solicit that kind of engagement and throw, so, through using this tech uh, and a mobile application, not only can they create, uh, you know, shorter feedback loops and increase participation, but they can do so in a way that delivers new levels of trust through the accountability and the transparency of the technology, you know, casting these votes uh, to a blockchain, as an example. On the other end of the spectrum, um, I guess less of a less of a social good and, and more of a commercial prospect is the utilization for this technology uh, within some high-profile European football clubs who, again, uh, want to use it to install trust and improve uh, the quality of collaborative decision-making uh, amongst their members. We're talking to, as I suggested, a national government for elections. We are engaged, we're engaged with the, the WWF, which is not the defunct wrestling federation, but, of course, the global conservation uh, NGO um, on the topic of enabling more autonomous and decentralized uh, volunteer organizational structures. So look, it's it's pretty broad. There's, you think about voting not with connotations of the electoral process and you think about democratic processes outside of um, a political landscape. They exist within our workplaces, they exist within our families, they exist within soccer clubs, they exist uh, everywhere. And so wherever there is sensitive decisions to be made um, or this kind of accountability and transparency is important, um, then blockchain sometimes is a good thing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, shareholders voting and things could all, all that could be put on onto this. So, I mean, when you think about the future, this is the question I like to ask every everyone who comes on the show. When you think about the future, 
Are you optimistic, pessimistic, somewhere in between? Where do you lie? I like to champion something that I call intelligent optimism. I very, very specifically am biased um, towards possibility um, rather than impossibility because um, I've never seen anything good derived um, from pessimism. Never in my life. I'm not sure what pessimism accomplishes. It certainly doesn't affect positive change. And so if you're not working towards positive change, then you're not helping. Um, I think optimism is incredibly important. And despite the fact that both locally and globally, we've got some enormous challenges to solve, I, I do believe we are pointed in the right direction. The 24-7 news cycle, or the, the 24-7 fear cycle, as I like to call it, seems to lead people to believe that we live in the worst time uh, in the history of the universe, when in actual fact, um, it's the opposite. If you look at the data, we actually live quite literally in the best time that there has ever been. Uh, record lows for, for famine, record lows for poverty, uh, record lows for terrorism and, and, and homicide. In fact, everything is improving, uh, and it also uh, and it always has. And sure, there's been some some bumps in the road, and we'll see some more bumps as well and some big dips. We are actually constantly uh, improving, and uh, I, I really believe we can make that continue. Yeah, it is interesting just to note that the majority of people who come on the show it is an optimist. Uh, outlook. And I think that that's part of you wouldn't be doing what you're doing if you weren't optimistic about the future and, and where things are headed. So before we kind of finish up and wrap up, I'd like to know a little bit more about what you've already got going on. You've mentioned a few things, but I know in Indonesia, for example, you've, you've just recently had some cool stuff happen there. We've talked about the problem that needs to be solved and Horizon State is doing an amazing job of that. We've talked about the future of where things could go and we went all sorts of places there. What about right now is in use, apart from like the football club and thing you've mentioned, what else is happening right now with blockchain, but in particular Horizon State? Unlike many uh, blockchain businesses, is more than a white paper. It's actually up and running. It's not theoretical. It, it does work. Uh, we've had it up and running for my vote since February last year. We've been running votes within their membership on uh, on our tech. Um, the, the next really big um, deal for us is indeed uh, Indonesia. We've signed a deal with um, the NU. I won't even try and pronounce what that acronym stands for. Um, but they're 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 one of the world's largest socio-religious organisations. They are they're an Islamic group that's that's um, striving towards progressive ways of thinking and encouraging anti-extremist you know, movements and building hospitals and doing all kinds of fantastic positive things which align philosophically very much with the, the impact that Horizon State wants to have. Uh, and they've got you know, 96 million members or so uh, in Indonesia uh, and they want our technology to be used by their membership uh, to make policy decisions about the organization and engage in more meaningful ways and do so transparently and, and with accountability. And so that's, that's a big deal for us in terms of uh, empowering individuals, and we, we expect to see much more of that kind of thing. So, you know, it is important to reiterate that what we're creating isn't just political in nature. It's not just about supplanting or, you know, replacing elections uh, and election processes. Uh, it's, it's much broader than that. It's really about community enablement and, and community empowerment more broadly. That's fantastic. Jamie, thanks so much for joining us. I hope maybe in the future we can have you on to talk about esports as well. Um, but I'll definitely be keeping my eye on what you guys are doing with Horizon State. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Future of Humanity podcast. To download the latest episode and find the transcript and various resources mentioned in today's episode, visit our website at foh.show. That's F-O-H as in Future of Humanity and show as in S-H-O-W. Uh, you can also, via our website, contact me with any feedback or suggestions for future episodes. So please do reach out. Now, if you haven't already subscribed, you can find the links to subscribe on all your favorite platforms at foh.show slash subscribe. That's foh.show slash subscribe. 
And more importantly, if you'd like to continue the conversation from today's episode and connect with other listeners, then you can join our free community at foh.show slash community, foh.show slash community. I look forward to seeing you there.